This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors in the financial industry. Outer Blue by Amundi. Welcome to Outer Blue Talks Research, knowledge sharing on financial research. Hello, and welcome to this Amundi Research podcast, whose focus this month is on geopolitics. I'm Swaha Patanaik, Head of Publishing. And joining me today are Anna Rosenberg, who leads geopolitics coverage at the Amundi Institute, and Francesco Sandrini, our head of multi-asset strategies. Anna, Francesco, great to have you both with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. Geopolitics has become an increasingly big concern for financial markets in recent years. There have been wars of words and plenty of trade friction but unfortunately also actual military conflict, notably with the invasion of Ukraine. Fractures and shifts in alliances between countries are reshaping the global economy and trade. We're going to kick off by discussing the really pivotal relationship between the world's two biggest economies, the United States and China. Anna, let me turn to you first. How do you see the Sino-American relations evolving? So, it's our base case expectations that the relationship is on a controlled downward decline. And um, if you look at, at it from the US perspective, we've had a, a fringe opinion, which was being hawkish on China, become mainstream now. We're entering the presidential election campaign for 2024. All of the candidates in the running are hawkish on China. So, you know, you can assume that the, the relations with China is not going to, to improve from a U.S. perspective. On the Chinese side, that actually is mirrored because we've had a couple of developments over the last couple of months which have put China onto a new trajectory and that it has ended a predominant strategy that, that, that was prevalent so far, which was a strategy of hide your strength and bide your time. And China has come onto the world stage as a more assertive player. We've had, um, you know, the, the, the balloon incident at the beginning of the year. We had the accusation that China was sending weapons to Russia. And we had the dismissal of China's peace plan for Ukraine, uh, which was, you know, negatively received in China. And so China changed its strategy. And so now we are in a great power competition between both sides. In history, usually great power competitions lead to direct warfare. However, that has changed really since the invention of the, of the nuclear weapon, because the cost, the overkill effect of nuclear warfare is simply too high. So instead, we are in a high stakes competition. In game theory, you call this a game of chicken, which basically is, is both players constantly provoking each other, knowing that one side has to back down, because if they don't, the outcome is too destructive for both. Okay, so it's a, it's a high stakes competition. It is similar to the to the to the Cold War, in that we're having uh, you know a higher risk of accidents, in that we're having um, a, a higher risk of proxy wars. But ultimately, the U.S. and China are too deeply ingrained to a, a commercially to really um, lead to a, to a, to a rupture in, in relations. And therefore, our base case expectation is that we're having um, a controlled, steady downward decline for, for really the next several years. 
Thank you, Anna. So, I mean, this is a high-stakes uh, competition, but also a high-stakes relationship for the whole of the global economy. So, even if we don't go off the end of the cliff in this game of chicken, what does a controlled downward decline in U.S.-China relations look like, do you think? So this is actually a very important point because, uh, you know, a downward decline doesn't necessarily mean that you have a, a real rapid deterioration. We're going to have periods of, of improvement as well. And I would actually argue that right now we are in a, in a period of sunshine. You are seeing this. We had Yellen in the U.S. Um, recently, Blinken recently. This week we're going to have John Kerry heading there as well to, to have talks on climate. So we have a we are having a discourse with politicians, which is a, a positive sign because there is a floor under the deterioration. We're likely going to also see um, two, at least two meetings between um, Biden and Xi later this year. So at the same time you have these positive encounters, you're still going to have more export controls from the US, but also from the G7 countries towards China, specifically when it comes to key technology uh, and anything that could really help China's military and technological advance. Um, we're going to see some retaliation from China as well on this. We've already seen it, right? We have seen this um, with uh, new export uh, licenses required for some mineral exports. We've seen some intimidation of foreign businesses within China. Those things are going to, to continue. However, it's important to note that both sides are not escalating. The measure, measures currently being put out there are fairly soft, right? We are really in this high stakes um, game of chicken. And, and I think the last couple of weeks with Blinken's visit being counted, which was positive, being then you know counted with some very negative comments from Biden, uh, the, the China uh, Chinese response on some of the new export controls from the Netherlands, being mineral export controls. So we have this back and forth now all the time. And that's what the new normal is going to look like. Um, it's, it's just going to be more noisy. At times there will be more, more tensions, but ultimately there are also going to be periods of light. Thanks, Anna. Francesco, let me turn to you. I mean, what Anna is describing is sort of volatile trade relations, volatility in geopolitics, and that's never great for investors or companies. What sort of repercussions are we already seeing on investment flows and what do you think lies ahead? But many uh, last three years uh, have been uh, particularly rich in regulation uh, to reflect uh, an emerging geopolitical order. Companies have been mitigating risks by reducing dependencies on uh, China suppliers uh, and diversifying uh, sourcing and uh, production. In other words, international uh, shortening the international value chains. There are new opportunities in different regions uh, emerging like Japan and South Korea that are perceived uh, as uh, new possible alliances of the United States. They are quite close to China, but at the same time, they possess a nice stock of technology and they can benefit from international relocation. Mexico as well can uh, certainly benefit from the relocation of industries uh, out of the United States and also at the same time uh, attracting also new business from, uh, from Europe uh, with uh, its cost-effective labor force and the proximity to the United States market. Uh, then uh, the United States are entertaining at the moment also a lot of uh, new uh, friendship relations with countries uh, 
strategically important like Thailand and uh, Malaysia, they can be extremely important and instrumental for shipping within the region. And finally, we think that Europe uh, is trying to, to establish a brand new level of relation with uh, the Latin American uh, continent, and in particular with uh, agreements like the Mercosur that have certainly the potential uh, to establish new trade agreement with the region and boosting uh, the provision of commodities as well. Absolutely. And that's a really good point. So, um, Anna, I mean, the war in Ukraine has highlighted how dependence on others for energy or other raw materials can be potentially destabilizing. I mean, Francesco is pointing out the Mercosur, which has some of this at its heart. Um, do you think the lessons have been fully integrated and learnt for the future? Um, Anna, what do, you, what do you see ahead? So, Yes, and, and to some degree, right? There's obviously a realization that there's an acute need for um, diversification, both in natural resources, but also in supply chains. And some some things are underway, right? Uh, European leaders are actively trying to court Latin America, Latin, Amer Latin American countries, for example, but also Central Asian countries to accelerate that uh, diversification. However, the extent of the dependencies are, are pretty significant. And even if you're starting efforts right now, you're not going to achieve um, full diversification, both from, from you know, especially from China at this moment in time. And as a result of that, we are in an environment in which there is, has been a geopolitical shift in which each country is trying to get the most out of it for, for themselves. We are not anymore in an environment where there was a common denominator, which was trade is good for all of us. Let's, let's just do business with each other. That environment is no longer there. We are in an each to their own environment. And in this kind of environment, natural resources will ultimately be used as political leverage. Right. So we're going to see um, that being exploited more. I already talked about some of the export restrictions um, that China has now implemented on some minerals. These minerals are not yet critical. Right. We have a, a huge dominance over rare earths. Uh, the EU is very uh, dependent on Chinese uh, solar infrastructure and panels export, for example. So we're now in this environment where there's just a lot more scope for um, geopolitical leverage through natural resources, and that will be used because we've already seen sanctions becoming commonplace, where more sanctions increases the risk of hot wars, it increases um, the risk for retaliations, so it will increase um, the prevalence of natural resource being used as, as a, you know, as a tool to, to get concessions. So all in all, if you put all of this together, the environment in which we are is there is an attempt to diversify, but ultimately there's a lot more risk. There's a lot more um, time that, that business leaders and politicians have to spend to navigate a riskier environment and to cut new deals as well. Thank you, Anna. Um, so, Francesco, I mean, what Anna's laid out, particularly the sort of each to their own approach, as she put it, a very ind individualistic, perhaps uh, strategic national interest viewpoint, um, that's going to affect perhaps some sectors more than others. Which are the mo ones that are most sensitive to these developments? 
Uh, for sure, there are sectors that are certainly at the epicenter of this uh, phenomenon. For sure, we can discuss the sectors like the semiconductors, the electric vehicles, the biotech, and probably the artificial intelligence. Uh, these sectors are the ones that have been uh, more interested by the wave of regulation we have been uh, alluding before, like the CHIPS Act or the Inflation Reduction Act. These are, uh, this is quite important. This is bringing a higher level of uh, risk uh, related uh, to sanctions, uh, and uh, this is profoundly affecting also the flows from international investors. We have been noting, uh, as a result of that, during the last couple of years, a substantial lack of support in terms of international flows to the Chinese market, in particular uh, with uh, markets like Hong Kong, uh, where some of those sectors that uh, we have been uh, alluding to are uh, particularly represented in terms of capitalization. So, this this is extremely important. Uh, United States investors uh, flows uh, into the region uh, have been reducing. European investors have been uh, uh, still investing, uh, albeit uh, reducing a lot uh, the size uh, of the investment. And uh, what has been uh, emerging is an appetite from their own economy from uh, Chinese investors. So if you wish, uh, as a result of the increasing level of, uh, of regulation and the fear of sanctions uh, is acting in such a way that markets are becoming more regional and to some extent this is really uh, something to scrutinize uh, with a lot of attention in the future. We think to conclude that China remains extremely important both tactically because uh, of what we described, so the tension coming from this new geopolitical order emerging, but also because uh, certainly the amount of liquidity is still available in the region uh, bodes for uh, a supported demand for equity assets moving forward. Of course, uh, this is, uh, has to be seen. Thank you. I'm going to come back to you, Francesco, on the fragmentation. But let me turn to Anna first, sort of about the winners and losers. There's always some of each in every conflict or, you know, challenge we face. Anna, who might benefit from the tussles that we're seeing and the fragmentation that you and Francesco are laying out for us? Well, really, the, the winners can be grouped into various buckets. Um, we have uh, the winners of influence, we have the in winners of diversification, and the winners of defense. So let's um, unpack this a little. The winners of influence are, are countries that are making the most of the geopolitical realignment of the U.S.-China tensions and, and the war in, in Ukraine by strengthening their influence in the region and in world politics. So just to name a few, it's, it's clearly India, right? I mean, that's on everyone's mind here when we're seeing the very strong new relationship that India has with the U.S. But at the same time, it is a, a, it's a partner of Russia and of China because they're remaining non-aligned. It's also the likes of Saudi Arabia which is taking more control over, over you know, matters in the region, and of course also Brazil. But also unexpected winners, right? Like Iran and Syria, which are making the most of this um, tensions right now to, to re-emerge onto the world stage as well. And then we have the, the, the bucket of diversification that you can group into two subgroups. We have those winners that benefit from the immediate need to diversify, all right, energy, for example, right, your LNG, your Angolas, your Qatars, etc. But then also for future diversification, like rare earths. And then the ones that uh, Francesco was already talking about, the supply chain winners, right, the ones that are uh, leading to a diversification away of supply chains from China, your, your Vietnams, your Thailands, 
but also from from Eastern Europe, like Poland, for example, has uh, seen um, supply chains for cars move towards Morocco, and of course also Mexico, right? Um, so so there is a shift going on there. And lastly, the the defense winners, which are seeing a you know a huge inflow of interest, um, because of the the militarization in the South and East China Sea, for example. So the Philippines, uh, Japan, Australia as well. So those are a couple of the of the winners of the the the, the non-aligned countries. Thanks, Anna. Let me get you to expand on that. Anna's already touched on some of the particular sort of perhaps as she mentioned LNG, some of the countries. Um, maybe you could give us, Francesco, some investment opportunities that you think the uh, the whole tussles and problems might throw up for us. Uh, sure. So I, I think that uh, because of the changes that are undergoing, uh, we will uh, probably uh, see an overall uh, environment that will become probably more inflationary moving forward uh, with the shortening of the global value chains as an effect of this uh, new wave of, regula of regulation. So uh, a fundamental approach uh, will be extremely important because the structure of costing of the company will uh, greatly shift. Companies will reassess uh, their cost structures and uh, they will shorter, uh, shorten quite a lot of the supply chain. Uh, during the transition, certain commodities may become uh, locally scarce. Uh, this can be the case of uh, nickel, uh, cobalt, for example, that are extremely very important for the electric batteries. So there will be probably commodity producers that uh, will have bargaining power and that they may attract uh, local production sites also thanks to their more cost-effective uh, labor force. So this may be the case, for example, of countries like uh, Indonesia that uh, probably for the provision of, uh, of nickel uh, is extremely important. This might allow some emerging market economies to step up, uh, positioning uh, along the value chains, transitioning uh, from uh, being uh, uh, predominantly commodity exporters uh, to become uh, exporters de facto of uh, interne intermediary goods. So in this environment, clearly commodities is an asset class that makes sense uh, to hold in the portfolios because uh, there will be a new geopolitical order shaping uh, the market. And uh, so because of that, it's probably interesting to look also to commodity-rich countries in Latin America, for example, looking at Brazil, but looking also to countries that are big exporters of copper, like, for example, Chile. Thank you, Francesco. As you say, somebody always manages to find a silver lining in all the problems. Anna, Francesco, thank you very much for your time and for your really interesting thoughts. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for taking the time to listen to us today. We hope you'll join us again soon. This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors, as defined in Directive 2004-39-EC, dated 21st of April 2004, on markets and financial instruments called MIFID, investment services providers, and any other professional of the financial industry. Views are subject to change and should not be relied upon as investment advice on behalf of Amundi.